You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Trey. Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey, Alistair, James, Nick, Ryan, and Valentin. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. If you'll allow me just a moment to talk about sailing craft, the names and definition of those craft. Today, a ship is any sufficiently large vessel capable of carrying cargo, specifically on the open ocean. That's why a riverboat, even a big one, is still called a boat. But in the age of sail, in the European definition, a ship had to be specifically ship-rigged. That's three masts, at least, with square-rigged sails, those big rectangular sails with limited maneuverability but a ton of power behind them. Those sails, that rigging, allowed for the multi-decked behemoths that ruled the waves during the age of sail. Most vessels that pirates sailed in weren't technically ships. Most of them weren't three-masted and didn't have the square rigging. Brigantines, for example, or sloops, were not technically ships. If the pirates had, say, a frigate or a bark, that was a ship. Queen Anne's Revenge was a ship. Bachelor's Delight was a ship. Amity, though, was not. A general rule of thumb, however, is that a ship can carry a boat, but a boat cannot carry a ship. That's the definition that I try and, admittedly, usually fail to stick to. But all of it, all of these definitions fall into complete disarray as soon as we leave the sphere of influence of Europe behind. When we get to Arabian vessels or Indian vessels or South Asian vessels, the rules are all different. For example, the Chinese ship called the Junk, which was a phenomenal ship, despite its name. 
The junk had what were called fully battened sails. That's what gives them the ribbed look you see on so many Chinese vessels, which is a different style of sail than was used in the rest of the world. But we're not going to be talking about the Chinese junk for some time. It will eventually be the basis for the largest and most powerful, the most successful pirate armada of all time. But that's some 110 years in the future yet. For now, we're much more interested in Indian and Arabian shipping. Most of the ships native to the Indian Ocean were latine-rigged. Those are the triangular sails you see on a lot of modern pleasure boats. The word latine, as we've mentioned before, comes from the word Latin. There was a time when latine-rigged vessels dominated the Mediterranean, carried Roman soldiers from one end of the empire to the other, hence Latin-rigged. There are a ton of examples we could use of fantastic latine-rigged vessels. The sloop, for example, was latine-rigged. A single-masted triangular sail, usually with a foresail and occasionally one at the aft. They were fast ships, extremely mobile ships, perfect for pirates. But I would rather talk about, for no reason whatsoever, I mean it's not like it's going to come up at any point today, I would rather talk about the Tao. Or maybe it should be Tao or Dahao. Arabic gives me more trouble than French, and Tao derives from Arabic, so I apologize for that. But the Tao, as a sailing craft, was omnipresent in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, people from Arabia and India will argue about where the design of the Tao originated. But by 1690-1691, the Tao was everywhere. It could travel into the deep sea, but they were smaller craft, usually only two decked ships with a crew that maxed out somewhere around 50 or 60. But because they could only carry so much food and water, they were typically coastal vessels, coastal-ish vessels. A sloop, likewise, could travel anywhere, but you had to be a particularly crazy kind of sea dog to attempt a transcontinental voyage in such a small ship. This is episode 192, The Gate of Tears. Let us jump forward just a few years here. Benjamin Fletcher, the governor of New York, the former governor, was pulled before a London judge. And he had to be. A message had to be sent. Piracy was on the tip of every tongue. It was the talk of every town. It was the front page of every newspaper. And the pirates themselves, well, Henry Every was God knows where. William Kidd was indisposed at the time. Frederick Phillips, the church builder, landowner, and New York luminary who was integral to all of this, well, he was resting comfortably in his mansion in New York because people like Phillips don't get arrested. But he might have been a bit nervous. But everybody else, everybody that the authorities could get their hands on, was arrested and tried. But Adam Baldridge was the man in question, the man being questioned most forcefully, the star witness in this entire affair, what they call a, a smoking gun, a linchpin. 
See, there were a host of pirates and informants being questioned all around the world in the late 1690s. New York, Boston, London, some of those names we've met before. Many of those names we have not, but we will talk about all of them. Adam Baldridge, though, was the keystone, the eye of the storm. I don't have any more symbolic metaphors here, but you get the idea. He's the star witness. Baldridge, as we know, was the merchant proprietor of St. Mary's Island. The enabler, a facilitator, maybe, of an entire generation of pirates. And he talked. In 1698, Baldridge told the court at Westminster everything. Now, that might not be what we want a pirate mastermind to do. Our national snitching policy does read, after all, that snitches do get stitches, but there is no honor among thieves. That testimony, which is going to be something of a Bible for us moving forward, that testimony tells us about the first pirate that Baldridge will admit to having arrived at St. Mary's Island. The testimony reads, quote, October 13, 1691. Arrived Bachelor's Delight, Captain George Rayner, Commander. Burden 180 tons or thereabouts, 14 guns, 70 or 80 men. That had made a voyage into the Red Sea and taken a ship belonging to the Moors. End quote. And then he gives a very detailed rundown of the goods traded that was largely what he had to testify, from his records, you know, but I want to pause here. He says that Bachelor's Delight had taken a ship belonging to the Moors in the Red Sea. The Moors, the Moorish people, were an Islamic people from North Africa, from the Iberian Peninsula, and generally the Western Mediterranean. But thanks to the Crusades and a few centuries of general cultural insensitivity, the Moors came to mean any people of Islamic faith. So Bachelor's Delight and George Rayner captured a Muslim ship, but we don't actually know who it belonged to. Certainly not the Moors. They weren't anywhere near Morocco or sailing out of Saleh, for example. What makes it difficult to pin down is that there were three large political entities within the Muslim world at the time. Not to mention all of the smaller states within those three, but in the broadest possible strokes, there were three. First, there was the Ottoman Empire. Now, we don't need to reintroduce the Ottoman Empire. We know who they are. Asia Minor, North Africa, much of Eastern Europe, Greece, and parts of the Middle East were under their control. But there were two other large political and military entities within the Muslim world. The first was the Safavid Caliphate. We might just call them Persia. Many people do, even though it's not technically accurate. They controlled Iran and most of Iraq and large swaths of central Eurasia. We'll get to them in a moment. First, I want to talk about the Mughal Empire. They are the entity with which we will be mostly concerned moving forward. The story of the Mughal Empire could begin with the Mongol Empire, with Genghis Khan himself, an empire that controlled most of Eurasia at one point, certainly all of what we would call today the Middle East. But I'm not going to delve into all of that. Instead, we're going to look at a man who was 
reportedly, supposedly, Genghis Khan's descendant, another steppe conqueror from the 1300s, Tamerlane. His right name should probably be Timur, but most of us in the West know him as Tamerlane. Tamerlane was one of the greatest military minds in all of history, one of the last to forge a large and powerful empire without the use of gunpowder. That empire in central Eurasia did not stretch as far as the original Mongol Empire, but they did conquer Persia, such as the Persian Empire was in the 1300s. Eventually, though, Tamerlane moved on to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and a pretty big chunk of Turkey fell under their sway. This was not only the Persian Empire, but also much of the Ottoman Empire. One could argue that some of the pressure put on the Ottomans by Tamerlane from the east forced the Ottomans to move west, to expand into the Ottoman Empire. That all lasted until about the mid-1500s, when what they called the Timurid Empire had grown weak and fat, as empires tend to do. A resurgent Shia peoples, a resurgent Persian people, started taking back their land, mostly in Iran to start. That was the beginning of the Safavid Caliphate. Now, we're not going to be super concerned with the Safavid moving forward. Their naval presence on the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea wasn't huge. But when it became clear that the Safavid were ascendant, that they were going to win back Iran and perhaps the whole of the Timurid Empire, a leader among the Timurid named Babur dug in his heels at Kabul. He held out there against all odds, and when the enemy began to fall back, Babur moved out. He took back territory in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Finally, after years of fighting, after years of defeating the Safavids, he secured an alliance with the Safavid Empire. A peace treaty that led to a military alliance and agreed upon borders. And with his borders to the east now secure, Babur began to expand, first to the north, to Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan, but he ran into a new military force out of Kievan Rus. We would call them Russia. So Babur turned around and began to move south. Now, traditional military thinking would say that there was nowhere to move south. His borders ended at the Himalaya Mountains. But his forces, along with a large number of troops from both the Ottoman Empire and Safavid Empire, they were all allied now. Those troops pushed through the Himalayas and into Hindu India. This was one of the great military moves in all of history. It's, you know, it's Hannibal crossing the Alps, only with way more troops and guns and bigger mountains. What makes it especially noteworthy is that Babur himself was a descendant of Timur the Great, of Tamerlane, and thus he was a descendant of Genghis Khan. It's a lineage he played up, as he should, being related to two of the greatest military minds in history. But neither the Mongol Empire under the Great Khan nor the Timurid Empire under Timur, neither ever breached the Himalayas. It just, well, it was just too much trouble. Leave India to Indian devices. But here, in the 1500s, Babur did exactly that. According to his own propagandists, this new Mughal Empire was a Mongol Empire. 
Of course, the conquest of India wasn't going to be easy, and it wasn't going to be quick. Despite a string of victories all throughout his life, Babur was going to die long before the conquest of India was complete. And honestly, the conquest of India was never really completed, not wholly. The whole of India never belonged entirely to the Mughal Empire. When the various kings and rajas around India began to realize that this Muslim horde coming through the Himalayas was going to be a real problem, they began to allow Europeans to build fortresses and factories all along their coast. Portuguese at first, then Dutch, but in 1611, the English East India Company built a factory at Masuli Patnam. A few years later, in 1640, they were granted license to build another factory at Madras in the Bay of Bengal. And when Charles II married a Portuguese princess, Catherine, he was granted the island of Bombay. And those three settlements, for a while at least, were it for England in India. The first English fort built in India, Fort St. Charles, was built in Madras in 1640, the same year they were granted license to settle. That fortress was the focal point of the First Anglo-Mughal War. Now, that war would not take place until the 1680s, but it was important. English forces fighting Mughal forces on the side, more or less, of the Rajas. But that's the whole point here. That's why the Indians gave territory to the Europeans. Sure, you know, here's a bit of coastline so you can trade in spices, but in return for that privilege, you have to fight the Mughal. And the Mughal Empire was pushing ever further south. Aside from these few European holdouts on the coast, most of India was under their control. Only the tip of India still belonged, politically, to Indians. I bring all that up because, well, we needed to rip the band-aid off at some point to really understand who and what the Mughal were, but more to illustrate that we don't know who that Moorish ship that Bachelor's Delight captured belonged to. Were they Mughal or Ottoman or maybe even Safavid? The English were not specific. And it does matter. The English were kind of at war with the Ottoman Empire, not open declared warfare, but the Ottomans were putting pressure on Austria. And Austria were members of the League of Augsburg that bound the Netherlands and England and Spain and Austria all together. If George Rayner, an English pirate, was capturing Ottoman shipping, no big deal, buddy, go for it. They are, after all, the enemy. But if he was capturing Mughal shipping... Well, the treaty between Mughal India and England after the First Mughal War was less than a year old. It was a delicate piece at best. If he was capturing those ships, well, that might cause diplomatic tensions. Nonetheless, when William III came to the throne, it was felt that fresh blood was needed in India. In part, this was to secure William III on the throne. You don't want... Jacobite loyalists holding India as a sort of a kingdom in exile, after all. But also, new eyes and new hands to deal with the problem of the Mughal Empire. One of those was a bright young man named Nathaniel Higginson, who was sent in 1689 to serve as mayor of Madras. 
Nathaniel Higginson was the son of an American minister, a minister out of Salem, in fact. His father, John Higginson, did not take part in the Salem witch trials. He was there, he was a minister in Salem after all, but he objected to the whole affair. But Nathaniel's first job as mayor of Madras here near the end of the First Anglo-Mughal War was to rebuild the dilapidated Fort Charles. And to that end, Nathaniel Higginson employed his younger brother, Thomas. Thomas Higginson was a bit of a ne'er-do-well, kind of a roving, wild spirit, a young man who wanted ease and adventure and a good wage, a man who wanted freedom. And where might a wild young man find all of that? In the Indian Ocean, in 1689. Now, we don't have the letter that Nathaniel Higginson sent to his father. It was very likely lost in the riots that destroyed so much of the record of the Salem witch trials during the American Revolution. But we do have Reverend John Higginson's letter back to his son. By that point, he was already deeply concerned with the witch fever that was beginning to grip his community, but far more concerned was the Reverend, at least in this letter, about his youngest son, Thomas. He urged Nathaniel to set aside some money, quote, for Thomas, if he returned from Arabia, whither he has gone with privateers contrary to my own mind and his own promise, end quote. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thomas Higginson youngest son of a Salem minister and brother to the mayor of Madras itself, had apparently gone off to rove with privateers. And that's a key point here. According to East India Company statute, agreed to by the king, there could technically be no privateers beyond the Cape of Good Hope. Even licensed privateer vessels, ships licensed to operate elsewhere, would be considered outlaws in East India Company waters. When Reverend Higginson talks about the privateers with which his youngest son is sailing, he's talking about pirates. Thomas Higginson had signed up with a pirate crew. Now, we don't know who that crew was, but we can make a pretty good guess here. The pirate ship Signet, John Reed Captain, was in the area at the time. They put in at Dutch ports nearby, very nearby. 
some of them close enough that an enterprising Englishman could have made his way there. It's very possible that Thomas Higginson was there when Signet and Bachelor's Delight met the Bay of St. Augustine. When Bachelor's Delight returned to the region some months later, we can presume that Higginson could still have been there. It's likely that he even joined up with George Rayner's crew, since Signet was currently sinking to the bottom of St. Augustine Bay. This is all a question of wind currents. Coming around the Cape, the wind is pushing east. A ship doing so could easily make for the southwest corner of Madagascar, but making it all the way up to St. Mary's Island in the northeast would be a harder sell, a, a harder sail, not impossible, but difficult. And after rounding the Cape of Good Hope, a ship is going to need a place to collect wood and water. It's a difficult crossing. Maybe, if they had nowhere else to buy such supplies, food and shot and powder, and men, from the moment that Signet anchored in the Bay of St. Augustine and began to sink, any passing pirate ship could be assured of supplies there, and men. But from the Bay of St. Augustine, in the Indian Ocean, the wind follows, most of the year at least, a counterclockwise pattern. From Madagascar, a ship would be pushed east, to Australia and Indonesia, and then north to the coasts of Southeast Asia, and finally into the Bay of Bengal at which point in the northern Indian Ocean the wind turns west, carrying you back along the southern coast of Asia and finally toward Arabia and the Red Sea. Then the wind is going to begin to push you back to the south, toward Madagascar and St. Mary's, where Adam Baldridge was waiting to buy all of your goods at cut-rate prices. That is the pirate round. That is the route that... George Rayner and Bachelor's Delight most likely took before arriving at St. Mary's on 13 October 1691 with holds full of Moorish goods. It was the route that a number of ships had already taken, and the route that more than a few will take in the future. It was the route that, here on the 13th of October 1691, Captain Thomas II and the Amity were well on their way to beginning. Thomas, too, is often given credit for starting the pirate round, but he didn't really. It's more like... Well, it's like Elvis popularizing a classic R&B song. You know, Elvis didn't write Hound Dog. Big Mama Thornton recorded it first, but we all know Elvis's version. It's the famous version. And Elvis made a huge pile of money because of it. As will Thomas, too. After that storm that separated Thomas II and George Dew, after the speech that Thomas II gave after the storm, after his crew agreed a gold chain or a wooden leg will stand with you, after everyone on board agreed to go pirate, the crew officially voted in Thomas II as captain of Amity. Then they voted in Richard Wunt as their quartermaster and representative. That's the point at which we lose track of Amity for a while. I suspect they stopped off at St. Augustine Bay. Adam Baldridge up at St. Mary's doesn't mention Thomas II, not yet, not at this point. And they would have needed to resupply the food and the water and 
a good bit of both. They had a voyage ahead of them. They also gathered crew, and I suspect they did so here at St. Augustine Bay from the leftovers of Signet. We do know that, back in Bermuda, Amity carried 46 men. Later on in this story, they're going to have 60 with them. They could have picked up sailors in any number of ports later on, but St. Augustine was, or at least later on, would come to be known as Libertalia. The myths about Libertalia range far beyond factual history. But right here, right now, when Thomas II and Amity showed up at St. Augustine Bay, there were pirates there who had sailed with John Cook and Edward Davis. Seven years earlier, they'd sailed on Lima in Peru. They'd crossed the Pacific with Charles Swan and William Dampier. They'd spent those tumultuous weeks and months on Mindanao in the Philippines. And finally, after a voyage around the Indian Ocean, they were here, a decade after having left home. I say after having left home, but really, these pirates did not have homes. It's not like they had a house somewhere waiting for them with family and a hearth and a warm bed. These pirates were nomads. Until, that is, they stopped here, at St. Augustine Bay, at what would be called Libertalia. And I'm using that term, but if we accept Libertalia as a concept at the very least, we need to understand that it isn't that yet. It's not a thriving pirate colony. We're talking about a broken-down old ship, the Signet, sinking into the bay. A few dozen pirates, probably still led by John Reed. We're talking huts just beyond the tree line, rusty muskets, and a startlingly diminishing cache of rum. This was not a glamorous life, but I don't want you to picture Swiss Family Robinson either. This was not a marooned crew on the shores of Madagascar. They chose to stop here. The pirates of the Signet were stationed at a pristine anchorage on one of the most traveled sea routes in the whole world. A lot of ships would be sailing by, and if they were not welcome at the Dutch ports in South Africa or the French ports around the region, this might be the best place for them to stop. Ships, for example, like Amity. From the time that Thomas II accepted his privateering commission on Bermuda in the summer of 1692, to when he and Richard Wunt and the whole crew turned pirate, to rounding Cape Horn and probably visiting St. Augustine Bay, that was a voyage of months. From Libertalia, or what would become Libertalia, Amity would have followed the wind around the whole of the pirate round. And that's a voyage about which we know almost nothing. No one kept a journal on this voyage, not one that has come down to us at least. But beyond that, the pirates made no waves on that voyage whatsoever. There are no reports that I've found of a Suspicious ship lurking about, no vessels happened upon in Indonesia by a bunch of English rovers. Not even in the factories belonging to the Dutch or English East India companies. There are no mentions of Thomas too, but months will pass. Assuming that they did take this voyage around the round, the wind would have carried them eventually to India and back east toward the Arabian Peninsula. 
In total, from Bermuda to Arabia so far, Amity had been at sea for more than a year, and I imagine that it was a voyage filled with adventure and hardship, with fantastical locales that make for amazing stories, but we don't know those stories. What we do know is that in late September or early October 1693, Amity approached a strait, the strait that separates Africa from Arabia, the entrance to the Red Sea called Bab el-Mandeb, in English, the Gate of Tears. The Gate of Tears, Bab el-Mandeb, is the hottest spot on the whole of the pirate round. The Gate of Tears is only about 20 miles wide, or 30 kilometers, or 5.8 nautical leagues. But all of the shipping that's going in or out of the Red Sea has to pass through the Gate of Tears. Now, it's not called the Gate of Tears because of pirates, as much as I would love to claim that to be the case. That's an ancient name, dating back to prehistory. But it is apt because of what the pirates are going to do. Over the next several years, the pirates are going to terrorize the Gate of Tears. In fact, they already had. And it was here, hiding in a cove on the coast of Africa, that Amity and Thomas II and Richard Wundt spotted a fleet of six vessels sailing into the Gate of Tears, north into the Red Sea. As I said earlier, the Dow is a fantastic ship. It's light and maneuverable, and it's fast. A small fleet of the Dow, say six or so, could carry as much shipping as a large European cargo vessel, and the investment in timber and construction materials was comparable, even less sometimes. But there was one big problem with the Dow. They couldn't carry many guns, or at least they didn't carry many guns. Big cannon take up a lot of space and weight on a ship, space and weight that could be better allocated to cargo. And at this point in time, 1693, these were safe and friendly waters. There's no reason to put guns on a ship that could be carrying trade goods. Now, if you were at war, space would be allocated for guns, and there would be Gunboats accompanying a fleet like this, probably carracks, the ships that gave rise to the Age of Sail that could carry a ton of guns. If this were a time of war. But it wasn't. Well, it was. The Nine Years' War was going on. But it was not a time of war for Mughal India. The Mughal Emperor at the time, the Padishah, what the English call the Grand Mughal, was a man named Aurangzeb. And Aurangzeb was a shrewd leader of the empire. He expanded the empire to its largest extent ever. Under his rule, the Mughal Empire would grow to become the largest in the world in terms of population and in economic power. But Aurangzeb was not one to waste money. Why, for example, should he send a fleet of Dao out to the Red Sea with gunboats in tow? That was an extra expense. And the fleet that Thomas II spotted there at the entrance to the Red Sea, at the Gate of Tears, belonged to the Padishah, to Aurangzeb. Now that's not out of the ordinary. It wasn't some kind of grand imperial fleet here. 
nearly all fleets out of the Mughal Empire, belonged to the royal family, either Aurangzeb himself or his mother or one of his wives. India did not have an East India Company. The imperial family sort of served that purpose. And this fleet belonging to the emperor was on a voyage of trade to the Ottoman Empire, carrying rich Indian goods destined for ports on the Red Sea. The flagship out front, a large version of the Dow, carried 300 men, all of them carrying firearms, 300 men versus the 60 on board Amity. Plus, there were five other ships in the fleet, smaller, yeah, but carrying comparable numbers of people, all of them with firearms of their own. This should have been no contest, right? And it wasn't a contest. Amity, spotting the Mughal fleet sailing into the Gate of Tears, surprised them. She sailed south to meet the flagship and opened a fullisade, a full broadside. That's not much on a sloop of eight guns. That's four cannon opening fire on the Mughal flagship, maybe two volleys. But those cannon had range. Without big guns to reply to that volley, the Mughal flagship had to surrender. They raised the white flag. Now, Amity almost certainly did not send over a force to occupy the Mughal flagship. They still had 300 men on board. Amity's strength was not in her pirates, but her guns. Instead, the flagship put boats into the water and abandoned her for the other ships in the fleet. It was there, with all of the Mughal's men safely aboard other vessels, that Amity sent over a skeleton crew to take the ship. In all, the fighting had taken less than half a day, and not a single pirate was killed, or even injured, in the capture of this Mughal vessel. Adam Baldridge would say in that later testimony, quote, Arrived the ship Amity, Captain Thomas II commander, burdened seventy tons, eight guns, Sixty men, having taken a ship in the Red Seas that did belong to the Moors. As the men did report, they took as much money in her as made the whole share run twelve hundred pound a man. They careened at St. Mary's and had some cattle from me, but for their victualing and sea store, they bought from the Negroes. I sold Captain Two and his company some goods brought in the Charles from New York. Captain Two set sail from St. Mary's, December 23, 1693, bound for America. End quote. Amity careened at St. Mary's. They bought cattle from Adam Baldridge and then, after a couple of months, set off from St. Mary's to St. Augustine, presumably to drop off a bunch of pirates who wanted to stay. At least, when Amity arrived back in America, the crew was again somewhere around 40. Which, for those crewmen, makes sense. I mean, if you had the food and the rum and a gun and a partner, a lot of the pirates were probably in relationships with other pirates, and for the rest, the women of Madagascar were quite inviting. But if you had all of that with, you know, no house, no responsibilities, just everything you needed to relax and enjoy yourself until another ship arrived, wouldn't you consider staying at one of the most beautiful places on the whole of planet Earth. If you had not had a home for ten whole years, why not make one here? As for the Amity, 
Thomas II and Richard Wundt and the other 40 or so members of the crew each had 1,200 pounds sterling. That is quite a haul. They probably passed first to the West Indies, maybe to Nassau, before heading on north. Now, we do know that they did not stop at Bermuda. Questions would have been asked when they arrived at Bermuda. After all, they'd never made rendezvous with that squadron intended to attack the French, as had been their mission. Those investors, the owners of Amity, would have expected them to return the ship and to repay their investment, neither of which the crew, nor Richard Wunt, nor Thomas II intended to do. Instead, Amity sailed for Newport, Rhode Island, Thomas II's home, and from there, on to New York. That story... Well, we're going to wait to tell that story. Next time, we are going to turn our eyes to a number of other pirates, all of whom were operating in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea at almost the exact same time as Thomas II. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show, you all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.